Heartland, Minnesota. Al, how are things over there on this fine, sunny day? Boy, it's a, a nice day, and I've, I've been uh, working out of state. I've been working in California for a while, so I think I missed the, the about the nicest weather we've had here. This past weekend year. was just phenomenal, Al. <laughs> yeah, and I was down uh, driving... Um, a good friend of mine from Haines, Alaska, called me yesterday, and he said that he and his wife had driven from Haines, Alaska, up to Haines Junction in the Yukon, and it's a 148-mile journey drive, right around 150 miles. He said in about 100 miles they met three cars. Oh, my goodness. It, and I'm thinking in California, I met way more than 100 cars every three minutes. I yeah. mean, way more than that. They just uh, There's a steady stream. And as I go through life, I don't know if any of you out there listening are like me, sometimes I get the feeling that I'm the only one that doesn't know where he's going. <laughs> Everybody knows where they're going. They're zooming by me and saying, what are you doing there, you know, and... And I'm trying to read all those signs around those five lane things. And do you have a GPS? Really Al, do you have a GPS? Because the other people maybe know where they're going because they all have their GPS on and they're just listening to that voice that says, "Right in 45 yards" or whatever it says. Yeah. So maybe that's it. You just are are trying to look at signs versus just listening to a voice just telling you where to go. I, that's just cheating, though. <laughs> no, I agree. That. Yeah, you got to have a. You got to have a back of an envelope with uh, things written on it, directions, and your passenger over there reading them to you and saying, "You no, know, no. I think I think we should have turned back there on exit 536. I was looking for Highway 536. I think we should have turned back there." So then you can growl at one another yeah. a little bit, and, and then there's this veil of silence comes down for a little bit while you have to try to find a way to get off the freeway and get up where there's an overpass kind of thing so you can go back and go back the other way and attempt to miss that exit 536 <laughs> once again. So, I've, you know, I've seen very few pheasant chicks. I was talking to somebody this morning who called and that was their question for me. Have you seen many pheasant chicks? And I said, you know, a couple broods has been about it. But and I bet a lot of folks have maybe seen this has been in a lot of papers and things. And I wrote about it, too, that the Minnesota DNRs, uh, they do a roadside survey of not only pheasants but a few other things. And they showed a 19% increase from 2017 in pheasant numbers. It's still 52% below the long-term average, so the number of pheasants are still way down. Weather and habitat are the two main factors. Uh, gray partridge, I talked to somebody uh, two weeks ago who said, I don't think gray partridges exist. I've, n I've never seen one, and I've been looking now. They were similar to their numbers from last year, but they're still 50% below the 10-year average and 93% below the long-term average. Uh, morning dove population has decreased 7% from last year. Cottontail rabbits have, dec have decreased by 23% from last year, but they're still well above the 10-year average. Uh, White-tailed jackrabbits, which I don't see at all here now, 
they're near last year's, but they're still historically low. And then white-tailed deer index has declined 13% from last year, but it's still 19% above the 10-year average. And the long-term average, when we we factor in deer for the long-term average, they're 99% above the long-term average. So, Not surprised people, at that. They like no, them, and they like green say, beans. We have more deer. I said, well, my dad didn't even see a deer until he was like the early teens, I think, on, on the farm. So, yeah, they're just, it, yeah, you're right, Karen. It's just no surprise. Uh, paper wasps are really numerous. I'm seeing them on the goldenrod plants. I'm sad because the the uh, guys from the county came out and mowed my my goldenrod uh, patch. That, uh, I mean, it, it's their property. They have, certainly have that right. But oh, I'd go out there every day and just look and see. I'd look for ambush bugs and assassin bugs and the, all different kinds of wasps and things. And all of a sudden, it's gone. But the the paper wasps were really numerous on those. And I came back in the house, and we have a lot of honeybees here. And one of the honeybees followed me into the house. I don't know why it followed me in the house. You know, it's just, it's not good in the house. And I'm sure he got in here and then he panicked, said, oh, my goodness, where am I? Where am I? What is this? So I opened a window, crank out window, and it flew back out in less time than it took me to close that window. So it had a very nice ending. I was at a uh, pleasing plowing bee at May Farm, uh, Jack May and his wife, near St. Clair, and sadly, the uh, rain said there would be no plowing today, but it was so much fun because there's so many nice people had gathered there. I spotted a gray tree frog that was greener than the milkweed leaf it was perched upon, and this frog is variable in color, so it has an ability to camouflage itself in shades of gray to green depending on what leaf or plant it's situated upon. So a lot of common green darner dragonflies. And when I was a kid, we called them devil's darning needles, snake doctors, or mosquito hawks. They were here and there and there and here at May Farm. And this is a large dragonfly that migrates south. So the guys we're seeing now, they're headed out of state. I also saw a number of native bees, which the honeybee, again, isn't. And a bee nest box makes a great gift for gardeners or nature lovers. So if you're thinking of something already at Christmas or something, this would be a wonderful gift for any gardener. And many of our native bee species are solitary. They're very effective pollinators. But in order to ensure that these bees spend more time in our yards and gardens, they need places to nest. Mason bees, leaf-cutting bees, mining bees. They're among those that utilize holes, and you can provide nesting space for them by building a nest box and filling it with, oh, straw-like things, tubes. Or you can just drill holes into a block of wood and make them different sizes because these different species utilize holes of different diameters. A simple box can be made from a cardboard milk carton or one of those Pringles potato chip cans just not they those things just work perfect and you can fill them with tubes made from straws wood bamboo plant stems you can paint them yellow or blue if you wanna they seem to like those colors uh, you can also purchase the boxes at a lot of your finer uh, garden and nursery stores and plans are available online but you don't have to go through a, a, a 
you know, a whole lot of money to make one of these, and they, they're really neat. I'm watching the one where they're filling all the holes up. Uh, Miss Lona, nice email from Miss Lona. Love Miss Lona. Uh, many robins in her yard. Uh, Chad Hines, a Mankato, said recent sightings, Tennessee, Nashville, Magnolia, Black Pole, Black and White Warblers, American Red Start, Eastern Wood Peewee, Swainson Thrush, Red-Breasted Nuthatch, Marsh Wren, Eastern Bluebird, Northern Flicker, Red-Headed Woodpecker, Green Heron, and Double-Crested Cormorant. Yeah, that's cool. I've got a red-breasted nuthatch in my yard, and I love hearing that little nasal call of theirs. They're just beautiful little birds. Uh, Denny Martin, a good friend from Shorewood, Minnesota, said, Al, a Townsend's warbler was reported in Albert Lee today in the Fountain Lake area. Apparently, are you aware of it? And if so, is it still being seen in the area? We would love to come down there on, on, on well, a certain day if access can be arranged. I believe it was seen on private property. It's, uh, I was in California, so I, I, I couldn't be a lot of help to Denny other than go, ah, pretty much like that. I heard from another friend shortly thereafter, Kim Eckert, who lives in Duluth, said, Al, since nothing about this has been posted on the MOU net, I thought I'd pass on an eBird report. The problem was that the bird was photographed, so it's maybe gone. It's on an Albert Lee street name, is stated in map, but there's no exact address. Bird looks like it's a private residence, so there may be no access. So, of course, it goes without saying that birders should not enter private property without permission from the residents or the observer. And, yeah, boy, we all try to do that. And I, as far as I know, it's not being seen now. I'm kind of kind of familiar with the who and where, but that's all I'm supposed to say about that, I guess. But, uh, again, it was a Townsend's Warbird, pretty cool bird here. Uh, Betty Lucas said, I had a lovely rain-free day to check out some of our field trip spots. We managed to find 18 warbler species at various locations uh, in Mason City, including yellow rump warblers, blue wing warblers, uh, good numbers of flycatchers, vireos, thrushes, a couple of purple finches, a staggering number of red-breasted nuthatches. We counted 24 of them in local pine trees. And I, I said I had one here. I actually have two, and I was so pleased to have two, and they have 24. Uh, Rita Granson said, saw a female western tanager at Lime Creek Nature Center. That's also where the, uh, uh, in Mason City. Uh, she also says uh, that it was during the Center's Fall Festival, and there were so many people around, it was hard to find it again. Well, it's good there's so many. Uh, Bonnie Williamson of Glenville called to say, should I stop feeding the hummingbirds? What should I be doing here? I I still have, uh, there's at least five of them in my yard fighting over the hummingbird feeders. I usually wait a week. If I don't see one for a week, Bonnie, then I stop feeding them. The number one thing to remember is that you're not harming them. They're not staying here because they said, oh, man, Bonnie put out more nectar. We're going to have to stay here till we can polish that <laughs> off. They're, they're going to go, Bonnie, so it's so nice that you care so much about them. But uh, you're, uh, 
you're doing doing them nothing but good. I have so a I, question about the monarch sure. ca- caterpillars because we've just got a few left, and there we've been letting some more out. You know, it's been a really good year for monarch caterpillars, and so I've still got some that are going to be hatching soon and letting them out. Is it getting toward the end of the season that they'll be able to make it back safely down south, or is they still got some time left to go? They, they still got some oh, time, good. but it, it certainly is getting uh, towards the end. And their chances of uh, encountering cool or inclement weather kind of multiplies as we get a little later here. But I would think they'll still be able to make it. And, and you know, they're going to try anyway, no matter what we think. If we say, you know, why don't you just stay here? They, they, they can't do that. It's not a choice for them. So they, they have to go. So we just always hope that nature knows what it's doing and says these are some late ones. But... Maybe the late ones are going to be the lucky ones, and they'll just hit perfect weather and the right winds and everything, and they'll make it there in record time. And at least that's my hope. Speaking of nature, we had our own little National Geographic close-up, uh, I guess, display in our yard yesterday. So my son, Grant, found a big green giant fat caterpillar with a horn on it. So it must have been the green, is it called the green tomato horn? Uh, what is it? The... The hornworm? Yeah, the hornworm. Yeah, it's got like a big thing that looks like a horn on it. It's big, fat, and green. So he found it on a nine bark, which is a a shrub, and it was a dark one, so it was easy to see. So we took it off, and he said, Mom, bring it over to the anthill over here, and let's watch the ants attack it. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now remember we were talking little boys so we brought the 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 uh, giant uh, caterpillar hornworm over there and he watched as the ants were attacking it i mean i don't know if that's the nicest way to kill it he said you know i could have i said well I, I don't want it in the yard but but the ants he said apparently inject formic acid or something in them and and it took quite a while but after a while they finally subdued the hornworm and it's um it's deceased Oh, ants are just amazing creatures. That that wonderful biologist Eel Wilson says that, uh, and I, boy, how you prove this or anything? But he said if you took all the ants in the world, it, they outweigh the humans. Uh, and again, I, you know, we can't get a scale big enough to. Well, prove do they? That. Will they eat the hornworm? Because he was convinced that it was food for them, and that's why they would, you know, it was in their territory, so they would attack it and then eat it. It's very, very possible, depending on the ants. But they, uh, a lot of them would certainly enjoy having something like that. And I remember being in Costa Rica and places <laughs> and seeing the leaf-cutting ants. Just endless lines of these guys carrying leaves. And it was like, uh, oh, the safaris I would see on the old Tarzan movies when I was a little boy where they're in a long line carrying things. And all these ants were carrying that stuff. So they were depending on leaves, but a lot of other ants will depend on something like worms and insects and things. And some are kind of generalists. Uh, omnivores and they'll eat pretty much anything so and i don't think a whole lot goes to waste in the ant world there's a kind of ant that uh, matches up with almost any kind of food and rachel i'm going to mispronounce your name rachel you told me your last name and i'm gonna oh man i just you know i grew up where everybody was named johnson hansen Sorensen, peterson nelson that sort of thing so son names i'm really good at and and i branched out so i can get the sen names christiansons and a lot of those i get those right but it's a uh, depuit d-e-p-u-y-d-t 
and she was just the, the nicest lady. So I really enjoyed talking to Rachel. She's from Eagle Lake. And she said, Al, what is the difference between a frog and a toad? Ah, good and question. They look different. I know that. And, you know, they're not easy to distinguish. We can look at them and say, well, most frogs have long legs and smooth skin. And spots, right? I mean, it seems like a lot of them do. A lot of them do. And then we look at toads and we say, well, man, they got shorter legs and they have rougher, thicker skins. And I will say that toads generally find their way into uh, my garden a lot more than frogs do. I certainly see some frogs in there, but toads just pretty much take up residence there for a lot. And mm-hmm. if you find their eggs, eggs, uh, fro- where frog would you find them? In the water. Oh, so they're not in the yard. Because I have been finding lots and lots of frogs in the yard out, out by the lake. In fact, I was mowing and I can see them. They're just like jump jump out of the way as the mower comes close they jump I, I don't think I've hit any but then there's some big really big ones which I think are the leopard frogs and then there's like a lot smaller frogs they look kind of like the leopard frogs but they're so much smaller so I don't think they're babies but are they another variety of frog perhaps they could be there are a lot of leopard frogs out there right now and I'm just seeing them pretty much everywhere I go and oh I can't remember what night we had so many rainy nights there I was coming home one night and there were just leopard frogs hopping across the road everywhere and I was thinking boy there's going to be a lot of good eating for raccoons that night or for crows the next morning because there would be uh, certainly a lot of frogs that were killed on the road and just make everybody happy Except the frogs, of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, but frog eggs, are they're found in a mass while toad, toad eggs are kind of in a chain. Oh. And when I was in school, I remember some things from school. You know, they're, they're fleeting, most of those things. But I was taught that all toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads. Oh. So if that makes sense. Uh, Tim Scott, good buddy Tim Scott, sent me an article from the New York Times. Uh, oh, I love the New York Times. There's just so much good stuff in there. And, and at the place I was staying in Texas, every in California, every morning they gave me the New York Times. So on Sunday I got one that weighed about uh, 17 pounds, I think. So I, I didn't make it through. I, I brought it home, and I'm still uh, trying to get through this. But in that, and Tim sent me the um, about feeding hummingbirds by hand. If you go into a lot of garden centers and nurseries and farm stores, you'll see these tiny little hummingbird feeders. Mm-hmm. And you, you hold them in your hand, oh. and the hummingbird will come there. Now, I was outside this morning, and I, a hummingbird buzzed right up into my face. I mean, I didn't have any red on or anything, but just and looked at me and went away, just saying, I, I don't know what he was saying, just to buzz off, buddy, or we need more uh, nectar here or something. And this is a wonderful story saying, is it a good idea to do that? Are we harming them? For the most part, it said uh, you might distract them from flowers a little bit. Well, our flowers are getting pretty much uh, sucked dry as Mm -hmm. far as nectar goes here. So I don't think we're harming them in any way. And that was kind of the story there, that uh, it's okay to feed them by hand. You know, be nice to them. But I have, uh, Tim says, I only feed the chickadees suet by hand and then only on a very cold day. I have fed chickadees by hand. Um, I remember doing that the first time uh, when I was 11 years old because I wrote it down in my journal how cool that was to go out and feed a chickadee. Uh, 
and I fed uh, on nut hatches. I had a gray jay come down and eat something out of my hand once when we were camping. And so, yeah, I've done some of that. Uh, not a whole lot. I guess I don't try usually, but I don't know that... Uh, have one of those little feeders, you know, all I can tell people is if they get one of those, be very, very patient because uh, it might take a while. And now that I tell you that, it'll fly down in an instant when you're out there with your hand open. So it's uh, thanks, Tim, for that. A nice uh, letter from John from New Alm, and he sent you a, a photo of a dead grackle. Yeah, poor grackles. You know, it's it's a it's a sad, sad thing. Uh, grackles get hit a lot, particularly the young ones. They just uh, they're not they're not street smart yet. <laughs> so they see a car and they just I can still beat it, and they just wait <laughs> like an instant too long. And then uh, they get hit. So well, it's now mentioning grackles. I remember when all I used to see in the yard was pretty much all grackles, and now I don't see those so much anymore. I see a lot of different ones. Is that because my yard has grown up in terms of the trees and the flowers and things? Because I used to see grackles more when there wasn't so much lush uh, foliage. Is is that the reason, or is it just they aren't around, or or why would um, they not be prevalent anymore? Yeah, that's, um, you know, Audubon says our numbers are declining, oh. which uh, is a surprise to everyone. Because, yes. uh, But they go to our yards, and they like, uh, they're sort of uh, communal nesters, so they will nest with other grackles. And they like mowed lawns for hunting, mm-hmm. and they like uh, evergreens of one kind or another for nesting. So in other words, they like our yards. And then if we, you know, if we have water, all the better. So that's why we see them in our yards probably a lot more than we do anywhere else. But once the babies are out of the nest, they disappear from our yards. They're gone. They're out traveling around, seeing the, seeing Minnesota, kind of. And they're just um, traveling around eating and and uh, bonding as uh, as a flock so they're just out uh, up to other things and they kind of leave our yards and do they migrate someplace for for the winters or do they stick they around? do indeed oh, they do. okay yep, they they head south as far as they need to to uh, be able to have a stable supply of food and not have to worry too much about the terrible weather we usually see some here on our christmas bird counts but not great numbers of them and when they leave our yards this time of year, I have to admit that most people I hear from are not real sorry to see them go. <laughs> so it's sad. They're just saying, well, at least we don't have all those grackles around anymore. So it's they, uh, they need to work on how they, how they get along with people, I think. They just need to present themselves in a more likable manner. Well, I, I notice a lot more geese now, too. The geese are starting to move because, I mean, it's I swear they're they're right overhead, so close. It seems like they're low-flying right now this time of year for, for some reason. I don't know if it's just because they're starting to move and maybe searching out the area or why it seems they're so much closer. Yeah, and uh, they're in... Uh, family groups now so they have the young ones oh. who haven't been flying a tremendously long time so they're again they're just checking out places and finding good places uh, where they can fly to maybe in the morning to go out and get something to eat and then fly to a loafing area and then fly out and get something to eat again and then towards evening they fly back to a, a safe bedroom 
sort of, so to speak, a place where they can feel safe from raccoons and coyotes and things like that, and dogs and and um, human kids running around, that sort of thing that might bother them. So we see a lot of geese now flying here and there. And uh, the other day I was out uh, driving around doing some errands, and I saw a lot of uh, flocks of geese probably in the seven to eight, maybe nine bird flocks. So these are family groups that are moving around out there, Ma and Pa and the youngins from this year. So it's nice to see them. It's like, it'd be like they're going on a, a shopping trip or maybe going to the, the Renaissance Fair or something for them because they're going to places where they've not been before. And it, It's got to be... I, I was so jealous of Canada geese when I was a boy because they were actually Canada geese then. So I'd see them flying north and then I'd see them flying south. And I'd never been anywhere other than Minnesota and Iowa. And I thought, boy, just to be able to see what they see from where they're at and what stories they must have when they get to where they're going. So I it, I, I love Canada geese. And again, I know a lot of folks don't appreciate their mowing of grass and, and fertilizing it at the same time. But uh, that's what they do. And, and they're very good at it. And I, I would love them to come in and mow my lawn for me. Um, John from New Ulm said, on September 1st, driving back to New Ulm on Highway 169 by Lesseur Sewage Pond area, I saw hundreds of big-sized white-colored birds. Not sure what kind. I usually see stuff going 60 miles <laughs> per hour. Yeah, you and me too, John. And we're the slow drivers, John. Everybody else, just think how hard it is for them to see stuff when they're going 80 miles an hour. They, they're probably uh, pelicans in there, I would guess, if there's hundreds of them. American white pelicans. We are seeing a lot of gulls, of course, now. Yeah, I'm seeing Franklins and ringbills and some other things. A lot of great egrets. But if they're in that number, it's more than likely going to be uh, American white pelicans. It seems and like uh, sewage ponds are the place to be if you ever want to watch for birds. Uh, a good friend of mine, Carol Schumacher, was going to write a book about sewage ponds. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, uh, and I, I don't know what happened to that because I, I, I've been waiting for it to be available, and I haven't because for a birder, uh, I told uh, uh, a good young friend of mine that we've gone birding together a lot, and he's getting that age now where he's thinking, you know, maybe he should find a, a, a nice woman. <laughs> <laughs> and settle down, you know. And I, he said, you have any advice? I said, yeah, take her to Just bird into a sewage pond. If she doesn't like that, you know, it's never going to work out anyway. So you can eliminate a lot of them that way if you just call them up and ask for a date. And Go to the sewage pond. <laughs> Yeah, and if in my day they'd always say, "Well, what should I dress for? You know, where are we going? Give me a hint." <laughs> and you just say, "Well, I thought we'd hit a few sewage ponds." And if they don't hang up on you, you know, you might have a shot there. So I uh, hope he's a wonderful guy. So. I, I chuckled when you said sewage ponds because yesterday I had the deputy director of uh, Mankato, the the city administrator, on my show, and we were talking about sewage ponds and how it was a part of the big master plan. And she says, "You know, sewage ponds just aren't." That sexy to talk about, and I thought, well, they're not. Unless you're a birder, then you <laughs> think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. So it's kind of all your perspective. 
That's exactly, I, I, oh, I couldn't even tell you how many sewage ponds I've been to. <laughs> and in, in earlier in my life, you could go to any of them, anywhere. You know, there wasn't a fence around them. Then they started putting fences around them, but you could still get in there. There wasn't, and then they put up no trespassing signs. So then you had to get a hold of somebody that had something to do with a sewage pond, and they usually went, yeah, you knucklehead, get out there, yeah. Just. <laughs> and now, you know, and I realize it's probably insurance risks and all those yeah. things. You just don't want a bunch of people out running around a sewage pond because nothing good could come of that, and it, it's sad. It's Well, it's a place where you wouldn't want to drown. I remember our big manure oh. pit that we had on the farm, and and it was, you know, a million gallons of manure. And the, the fear was if the cows got out that they would drown in there. And, I mean, it, it is true. That's just the place you don't want it. Because once you get out there, it's not like you can just easily swim through it. So I get it. Sewage ponds, manure pits, not the place to hang out for fun. That's, uh, I can picture my funeral. And oh, they'd geez. say, uh, what happened to him? Oh, he, he drowned in a sewage pond. And they'd all kind of bow their heads without trying to laugh too loud and say, well, that's the way he would have wanted to go on. So hey, they've been happy. I hope everybody will come to the cafe today uh, where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always a Heimlich maneuver and gravy is considered a beverage and now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. I was rocking in the free world as I used the screwdriver blade of an ancient jackknife bearing a faded likeness of someone who looked like Jethro Bodine on its handle in a feeble attempt to fix a table lamp. It's doubtful I was doing the lamp any good, but you never know. I must be mechanically inclined because I can tell when an internal combustion engine isn't combusting. Are you sure you can fix this? My wife asked. Was I sure? Uh, of course I wasn't, but I couldn't let her know that. <laughs> I told her that I was skillful as well as patient, insightful, creative, and logical. She said I left out modest. <laughs> I said, can I fix a lamp? Who was the star pupil in my shop class in school? I asked in return. Jerry Morstead, my wife answered without any pause. Well, that's true, but I was the star pupil in astronomy class. Did you learn anything in industrial arts class, my wife asked. It was like the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, I'd learned I'd never be as good as Jerry at fixing things. Besides, I was young and stupid in those days. My wife nodded before saying, that's true, but you're not young anymore. Aww. Remember, folks, Heartland is well worth driving past. Thanks for uh, having nothing better to do than to listen to me. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. I enjoyed your company, Karen, and I know I didn't get uh, everybody who has contacted me about things. Uh, I didn't get back or didn't mention them here, but I, I certainly will. As I well, say, I've been... I have one more question for you from John. He always sure. has to, you know, sends us good jokes or, or maybe sometimes they're good, sometimes not. He says, Al might know this one, but the bad joke for today is when do ducks wake up? At the quack of dawn. Oh, you, he thought you might know that one, and he was oh, right. Man. So there you John, go. John, <laughs> you have made my day. I'm going to just stride the world like a colossus. So I have a couple of adventures going on today, and you have given me the confidence I need to uh, attack those things. It's great chatting with you, Al. We'll be back again next Tuesday. Thanks, Karen. All right. Bye, bye, -bye. everyone. All right. It is always great to talk with Al Bat. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and your questions with with us to share with.